Please pray with me. And Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy will be upon us as we come before you on this Lord's Day. We ask that you would speak to us and that you would minister to us. Lord, you know where we are, you know where we've been, and you know what we must face. And Father, it is only with your fellowship, your presence in our lives, that we're able to endure and to recover from all the things that we've had to endure and what we will endure, and even what we are enduring right now. And so, God, would you be with us now and minister in the preaching of the word, and that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. During my junior year in high school, my best friend at the time thought it would be a brilliant idea to date this incoming freshman that he met at the beginning of the school year. Yeah. Needless to say, it was not really the best decision that he made, evidenced by the fact that he said those very words to me. John, this is not the best decision I've ever made. Uh, this was a pretty bad relationship, folks. Roller coaster, where there were bad parts and bad parts. It was just a really bad relationship. I mean, this girl did some of the most vitriolic, really crazy stuff that I've ever seen a human being do to another person. I'm talking about some real fatal attraction stuff, folks. Slashing my friend's tires, leaving ominous messages on his parents' answering machine, even calling the cops where he worked, where he inadvertently got fired. At the height of all of this, my friend pulled me aside one day at school and he said, John, please, please, if I ever get away from this girl, promise me you will never let me get in a relationship with drama. Please! Now maybe, as you look back on your past, you can recall a time where someone asked that request of you, or maybe you were the one who had to ask the request. No judgment if you have, okay? But I think we're all old enough to know that there are certain types of people in this world that we know we should not associate with, because if we do, we are inviting nothing but trauma and difficulties and challenges. In other words, drama drama. And what do we do in situations like that? Well, we avoid people like the plague who would do those kinds of things to us. And I think that's a very good thing. But like with most good things taken to an extreme can sometimes cause inadvertent harm to us. For example, I've known people who could have been in some incredible relationships with certain individuals, but instead of embracing such individuals, they downright reject them from the get-go. Why? because they're just so terrified of drama that they end up saying no to someone who would have been good to them because they would have been good for them. In other words, they would have brought some good challenges, some necessary difficulties that we all need if we want to be better people. You see, one of the things that life teaches us is that sometimes we do need drama. We do need challenges. We do need difficulties in order for us to become better people, meaning we need to be in relationships with people that sometimes bring drama. But so often, and too often, we say no to such people. And one particular person that Christians are notorious in saying no to is none other than God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now you hear that and you're like, come again, Pastor? Can you explain what you mean by that? Well. That's what today's passage is going to teach us today. As we take a look at Galatians chapter 5, here the Apostle Paul kind of wants to give us a little bit of a reality check. He wants to give us a wake-up call because he wants to teach us that sometimes we do need difficulties, we do need challenges, we do need tra drama, not trauma, drama in the relationships that we sometimes have in our lives. 
Of course, not the drama that my friend had to deal with in high school, for sure, but the kind of drama that God knows that we need so that we can be better people as well as better for people. And it all centers on this relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit of God. And so to help parse that out a little bit, three things I'd like to share with you in today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about how having the Holy Spirit will bring drama in your life. Having the Holy Spirit will bring drama in your life. And then we're going to talk about how having the Holy Spirit may bring disorientation to your life. And then finally, how having the Holy Spirit will lead you to your true life. So having the Holy Spirit will bring drama in your life. It may bring disorientation to your life. And finally, the Holy Spirit will lead you to your true life. Let's begin with the first point. First, having the Holy Spirit will bring drama to your life. Read again with me, verses 16 and 17 of our passage, where Paul writes the following, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Okay, come on back. Here, Paul begins our study by describing the nature of the Christian life. And how exactly does he describe it? Well, consider the two words that he employs to describe it. Those words are against and opposed. Against and opposed, two words that in most contexts convey this idea of conflict and challenges, okay? And so with that in mind, what this tells us is that according to Paul, the Christian life is a challenging life. The Christian life is filled with conflicts, okay? Why? Because the one to whom you primarily associate with as a Christian, i.e. the Holy Spirit, has much opposition against him. Later on, Paul describes the nature of this opposition with the phrase, desires of the flesh, which we'll come back to later. But for now, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul is saying that when you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, which is what you do when you become a Christian, you're also inviting drama. Okay? By choosing to associate with yourself to the Holy Spirit, you're also choosing to have drama in your life. Okay, And again, I'm not talking about the juvenile type that my friend had to deal with in high school. I'm talking about demonic drama. Demonic drama. You see that word in verse 17, the word flesh? That's not referring to your skin. No, 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 no. In New Testament theology, that word flesh is simply a shorthanded way of talking about demonic oppression and satanic domination. Consider this quote from theologian Sinclair Ferguson as he writes this, quote, Flesh is another way of describing the domination and impact on our lives of the present evil age where we are alienated from God and in the grip of the evil one. Hmm. And now I know many of us are the type where, again, we want to avoid relationships with certain types of people that will invite drama into our life. Kind of like that weird coworker, that friend of a friend, or sadly, even a family member. Okay? We want to avoid those kinds of people. And because that is so, I would tend to assume that for most of us, that would also include the types of people like, I don't know, Satan and his demons. And yet, Paul is telling us that by virtue of being a Christian, you will have to accept the fact that as a follower of Jesus, you will have to contend with demonic drama. You do have to accept that fact. Otherwise, 
The apostles would not have written some of the things that they've written in the New Testament. For example, the apostle Peter once said these words in 1 Peter chapter 5, where starting in verse 8, he says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. Now, if what Peter is saying here is absolutely true, which it is, that means not only do Christians in other parts of the world have to deal with demonic drama, but you, Christian, you have to deal with demonic drama as well. And I think this is something that we really need to grasp because what is happening far too often and for too many Christians in America especially is that we carry this false belief that as long as you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to live a drama-free life. Or as sometimes it is put, you'll live your best life now if you choose to be a Christian. And one of the ways that we express that we possess this false belief is we say some really ridiculous Christian cliches like, Jesus, take the wheel, or let go and let God. Now, Christian, if you're one of those who say those ridiculous cliches because you carry those false beliefs, please don't take what I'm saying here as an insult. I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm not ridiculing you. But I want you to be aware of the inherent danger that comes when you carry such false beliefs. And what inherent danger is that? It's the assumption that says that if ever I'm feeling any sort of uncertainty, if ever I'm feeling any sense of unsatisfaction, if I'm feeling any sense of unsettledness as a Christian, then that must mean I'm not living a true Christian life. Because you further go on to assume that a true believer, a genuine Christian, would just have nothing but inner peace within themselves. That they would have nothing but just feeling good and having good sense of who they are, where there's nothing but a sense of inner serenity and self-acceptance. But Paul is saying that is absolutely wrong, evidenced by the fact of another word that he uses to describe the Christian life, and that is the word walk. Walk. Look at what it says in verse 16, that we are to walk, right? That very word walk conveys what? It conveys this idea of something that is continuous, something that is ongoing. In other words, something to which where you have not yet arrived. Have you ever heard that expression before? Man, I finally arrived. Why do people say that? What do they mean when they say a statement like that? They're saying that they finally made it, that they're finally done. They hit that point of, of completion, right? And what that means in terms of your spirituality means is that there's no more conflict to overcome. There's no more challenges to conquer. There's no more improvements to make. There's no more insecurities to get over. I am done. I can be at rest. I can now live my best life. I can finally have a sense of peace. No. By virtue of using this very word, walk, Paul is saying that as long as you live your Christian life on earth, you're never going to be able to say, I've arrived, and you should never hope to ever get to a point and say, I've arrived, I've made it, I'm done. So long as you are walking on this earth, Christian, you will have to contend with insecurities, with your anxieties, with your struggles, with your issues, because that's what living the Christian life entails on this side of eternity. It entails drama. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says these powerful words, quote, 
The Christian life involves us in an ongoing, lifelong conflict. There will be many battles, daily, hourly. We need to keep walking in the Spirit, refusing to return to the flesh. We are in a war zone, and therefore we cannot live any way we please. In bodies that have been under the dominion of the flesh, we must keep deciding that now that we are in Christ, we will constantly live with our new identity and not according to the old world order. Just as initial deliverance from addiction does not mean we will never again be troubled by it, so it is here. We may have given our whole lives to Christ, but we will take the rest of our lives to work that out in practice. End quote. If you ever talk to a recovering alcoholic who successfully went through the AA program, you will know that they keep referring to themselves as alcoholics, even if it may have been decades since they picked up a drink. Why? Because the founders of AA, who were Christian, by the way, they understood what Paul says here in Galatians 5. And not only did they understand it, they accepted it. They accepted what many of us so often don't want to accept. They understood, they accepted that so long as you're walking on this earth as a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be devoid of freedom. You're going to be constantly having to... I'm sorry, you're not going to be devoid of drama, but instead you're going to have to constantly be contending with drama. Hear me when I say this. The Christian life is not a drama-free life. It is a drama-filled life. Again, the Christian life is not a drama-free life. It is a drama-filled life. And here's the thing. When you do not accept that, when you just stubbornly say, no, 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 I know I can reach a certain point of being drama-free on this earth, you're going to have a massively disappointing Christian life because you are fundamentally disoriented. Disoriented? Yeah, disoriented. What do I mean? Well, let me go to my next point. Having the Holy Spirit may bring disorientation to your life. Now, you'll notice how I said the Holy Spirit may bring disorientation to your life rather than the Holy Spirit will bring disorientation to your life. And the reason why I make that clear distinction is because the Holy Spirit doesn't have to bring disorientation at all. And the only reason why there is is because of you. You stubbornly refuse to accept the fact that part of what Christianity entails as a follower of Jesus is that you have to deal with Drama. Now, of course, it's understandable why we don't want to accept this fact. After all, we live in an age of self-improvement, self-help, self-acceptance, all of which has as its goal of being drama-free. But Paul tells us that when you let this age of self-whatever dominate how you live, that will disorient your relationship with the Holy Spirit to where it will manifest in some really ungodly ways, or as he puts it here, works of the flesh. Let's pick it back up with me in our passage. We're starting in verse 19. Paul writes the following words. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, come on back. I want to draw your attention to the word that Paul repeats at the end of that passage I just read to you, and that's the word warn. Warn. What does it mean to warn somebody? The standard definition is simply to inform someone of impending danger. To inform someone of impending danger. And the fact that Paul is using that word to Christians, not non-Christians, but to Christians, tells us what? 
It tells us that according to Paul and really the entire New Testament, it is totally possible for a true believer, for a genuine follower of Jesus, to do some of the most disgusting, degrading things to other people, including to other Christians. Let me say that again. By giving us this warning here in verses 19 to 21, Paul is telling us that it is very possible for true believers and genuine followers of Jesus to doing some of the most atrocious, disgusting, sinful things that he has just listed here. It's true. You know, I always get amazed whenever I encounter Christians who cannot believe when a prominent Christian leader falls into a massive scandal, right? I mean, I can understand them getting hurt. I can understand them getting heartbroken and upset. But to be utterly shocked, unbelievably shocked, I just don't get that. You know, case in point, uh, at the beginning of this year, a very prominent Christian leader by the name of Jean Vanier, who was the founder of La Arche, a ministry in Canada that focuses on ministering to disabled people, it was discovered that Jean Vanier was sexually abusing his followers for decades. And once this credible revelation was revealed to the world, Twitter just exploded where all Christians from all walks of life started writing, I cannot believe this is true. I just don't understand how this could be possible. Clearly, there's something wrong. This must be fake news. No, this cannot be true. This is simply not possible. Not possible? Paul says, oh, yes, it is. It is absolutely possible for something like this to be true. It is possible for genuine Christians to do some of the most atrocious things that Paul lists here, sexual immorality, orgies, drunkenness, idolatry, and most definitely anger and envy. And the reason why Christians are able to do this is because they're disoriented in their relationship to the Holy Spirit. Or if I could put it more simply, they do not have a proper understanding of the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Let me explain what I mean. Across the global church today, I would say there are two basic ideas, two major ideas in terms of what the Holy Spirit's role is in the life of the believer. Okay? One view or one church tradition has the idea that the Holy Spirit has a very hidden role in the life of the believer where the Holy Spirit doesn't want to draw any attention to himself, but instead he wants to draw attention to the Father and to the Spirit. Critics of those who hold this view will say things that Christians who believe this have their God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible as their triune God, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Because these Christians, we never talk about the Spirit. We never pray to the Spirit. We never seek out the manifestations of the work of the Spirit. And churches who kind of embody this belief tend to be more on the intellectual side, they focus more on doctrine and theology, and be very unnecessarily suspicious of emotionalism or any sort of, uh, of claims of supernatural workings of the Spirit. So that's one tradition or one view. Another tradition or a view regarding the role of the Holy Spirit tends to see the Spirit in a more visible, very prominent position, almost to the point where he comes across as functionally more important than the Father and the Son. Critics of this view would say that Christians who think this way have as their God as the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit as their triune God. Right? And churches who tend to embody this idea tend to be more on the emotional side. They're definitely much more charismatic. Okay? Much more feeling-oriented. And they tend to focus more on the manifestations of what they call the works of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, okay? 
So these are the two prominent views that we see regarding the role of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. Now, of course, here's the million-dollar question. Who's right and who's wrong? Because that's all we really care about these days, right? We want to know who's right and who's wrong. You know, if you ask the Apostle Paul that question, he would say that they're both wrong. Why? Well, consider what he says elsewhere in another letter of his as he specifically talks about the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Notice the way that Paul describes the nature of love is the complete opposite of the works of the flesh as it works against the Spirit in verses 19 to 21. See, all of the sins that Paul listed there in those verses in 19 to 21, they all have a share, a commonality, a shared commonality. It is all lacking love, right? When you lack love, you end up having the sins that Paul lists here. And it's the same lack of love that we see far too often amongst intellectual churches that tend to look down on their charismatic brothers and sisters, condemning them in their minds, saying, oh, they're so unsophisticated, they're just too emotional, they're just so prone to heresy, oh, they're just so uneducated, they're so unintellectual. Right? But conversely, we see that same lack of love in the charismatic churches towards our more intellectual brothers and sisters to where they have the kind of like this condescending, pitying posture where they say, oh man, you are just so, so behind. You are just so underdeveloped spiritually because you have no manifestations, you have no exposure to the true growth and development of the manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life. Right? Paul says, enough. Stop doing that. Because as far as Paul is concerned, the primary role of the life of the believer in the life of the believer is not to build a massive theological library. It's not to build a whole uh, set of experiences from your charismatic experiences. No, the primary role of the life of the believer is so that through the Spirit he can build community. Build community. Why? Because the Spirit of God is ultimately concerned with love, specifically displaying the love of God. And after all, what does love produce? What does love create? Love creates community. Okay? And it's the kind of community that Paul describes as having the characteristics of what he refers to in verses 22 to 23. It's a community that expresses joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But notice what begins all of those beautiful attributes? What's the first thing that starts off that beautiful chain of attributes? It's love, right? It's love and then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You see? So what's the practical takeaway? The practical takeaway is this. Our church, NCF, sees the Holy Spirit as primarily concerned with not creating an intellectual faith, not a charismatic faith, but a communal faith, a communal faith. 
And because that is true, that means, for those of you watching me, if you come from a more intellectual faith background or a more charismatic faith background, NCF can still be your home. And it still should be your home. You know why? Because the thing that should draw us together is what Paul identifies as the most important thing, the most highest priority as far as the Spirit of God is concerned, and that is the love of God. God's love is the thing that should bind us together and build us up into a community. Now, of course, that's all easier said than done, isn't it? Because we ask ourselves, how do we know whether or not the God of love, or excuse me, the love of God is really the central core aspect of what we desire from the Spirit of God. How do we make sure that we don't fall into the error of a charismatic faith or the error of an intellectual faith? Well, Paul already tells us here in verse 16 when he says, by not gratifying the desires of the flesh. By not gratifying the desires of the flesh. You see that word gratify? In the original Greek, the word literally means to finish, to complete, or to come to an end. Kind of of the same flavor of having arrived, remember, from my first point, okay? Here's something you need to understand, Christian. If you ever hold on to this delusion that you can have a drama-free life, right? a drama-free Christian life specifically, then you are prone to falling into either the error of intellectual Christianity or charismatic Christianity. You know why? Because both of these give you a false sense of finally arriving in your faith. Right? Oh, as long as I know all this doctrine, as long as I know all this theology, as long as I've read all these books, or as long as I've had this manifestation of the Spirit in my life, as long as I pray in tongues and I can prophesy and I've seen healings, as long as I've experienced these charismas, then I finally arrived. And what instead ends up happening, however, instead of arriving, is that there's nothing but conflict and disunity and division. There is lack of love. You see, the only way you can ensure that you have the love of God as the centerpiece of your faith is when you truly finally accept that drama is part of the Christian life on earth. Right? Now, I know that's so hard to accept. We don't want drama, right? We want to get rid of drama. We don't want it. And so the question is, is there anything that Paul could say to us that would not only accept that drama is necessary for the Christian life, but that we would even embrace it so that by doing so, God's love would be the centerpiece of our faith? Paul says there is. And to explain it, I go to my final point. Having the Holy Spirit will lead you to your true life. Why do you think people don't want drama in their life? I mean, of course, you could simply answer by saying, well, it's because they don't want difficulties or challenges and, and so forth. Sure. But in actuality, I think there's a deeper reason why people don't want drama in their life. And to help you see where I'm coming from, I'd like to quote to you a portion of a country song that I used to enjoy back in the days uh, by Rascal Flatts entitled, I'm Moving On. And it's, the song is really sung from the perspective of a person just trying to recover from drama in their life. Take a listen to a portion of the song where it goes like this. There comes a time in everyone's life when all you can see are the years passing by. And I've made up my mind that those days are gone. I'm moving on. You know, when a person is dealing with drama, one of the greatest fears that they have is that one day they're going to wake up and life has just moved on without them. Right? That they basically have been left behind and life has essentially 
moved on. When a person is suffering drama, that is their greatest fear, and therefore they feel that the only way they can avoid that tragedy from ever happening to them is that they need to get their act together, they need to have no drama, and they just need to move forward in life. But consider what Paul says here in verses 24 to 25. He says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul here says something very startling, something that many of us are probably not aware. And that is, as far as he is concerned, Paul says, there is something so much better than a drama-free life. And you know what that is? It's a sin-free life. Let me say that again. There is something, according to Paul, so much better and therefore something that we should desire more than a drama-free life, and that is a sin-free life. Okay? Why? Because when you have sin, you are overwhelmed with what he refers to as passions and desires. Passion and desires. When you are consumed with sin, when you're contaminated by sin, you have passions and desires. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I like this definition that C.S. Lewis once gave as he understands it. Take a listen to how he defines passions and desires from Paul's perspective. He writes this, quote, The natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It's afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. And in a sense, it's quite right. It knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all of its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it's ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. It turns out there's another part of us that wants to be free from drama, and that's our sinful selves. Our sinful selves wants to be free from drama so we can have free reign to do whatever it wants. And can you imagine what would happen to us if sin had full reign over us? Can you imagine how much more difficult, more miserable, how more disappointed we would be with ourselves if sin overran us? If you had to compare what's worse, having a drama-filled life or having a life full of sin, Paul says, It's no comparison. The sin-filled life is a life that God knows is much worse for us than a drama-filled life, which is why God came into the world as Jesus Christ so that he could free us, not from drama, but so that he could free us from sin. Think about that for a moment. When God thought about us having a sin-free life, he thought it was so worth it that he was willing to come in the form of a man so that he could die for it. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when God came into the world as Jesus Christ and he died on the cross for your sins as your substitute Savior, to where if you put your faith in him as your Savior and as your Lord, making him the center of your life, making him your king, right? he would spare you from what in his eyes is the worst possible life that you could ever go through. And Jesus thought it was so worth it that he was willing to go through the most traumatic, dramatic life ever. You see? 
And when you understand that Jesus did all of that because of his love for you, a love that you do not deserve, a love that you are not entitled to, a love that you could never merit, a love that shouldn't be given to you because you are a wicked, wretched, perverted, wrathful person, then you understand how precious the love of God is. And then you crave that more than you crave a drama-filled life. In fact, you crave God's love so much that you're willing to not only go through drama, but even embrace drama to where you could say with Paul in 2 Corinthians, I boast in my weaknesses, i.e. drama. I thank God for the thorn in my flesh. For when I am weak, when I have drama, then I am strong. Then I am filled with the strength of God's love. Brothers and sisters, we all have things about ourselves, issues, insecurities, anxieties, fears, that we wish was just free from us, that we just don't have in our lives anymore. But consider what God is doing with those things in your life. He is cultivating the greatest life ever, your true life. It is, he is preparing you for your life with the God who loves you and the God who you are growing more in your love for. That is your true life. Are you seeking that out, even if it means you have to deal with drama? I hope and pray that you do. Because when you do, you will come out of it not only as a better person, but better for other persons as well. Is that your call? Is that your conviction? May it be. May it be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Even though that kindness manifests in you permitting drama to be in our lives. But Father, we thank you for drama, even though it does not feel enjoyable to go through. For we know that drama is being used to develop us, to sanctify us into characters that is pleasing to you and a blessing to those around us, as well as the kind of character that allows us to finally say, I've arrived. God, we just pray for endurance during these hard times. We pray that you will help us to cope, but not only so, but to also to thrive and to flourish so that we can be people that really are salt and light in this world. Father, forgive us when sometimes we choose sin over drama. Forgive us when we sometimes forget your proper role in our lives, Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just pray that you will make us into a church body that really is united around the most important thing, which is your love, which is found in Christ Jesus alone. Father, help us to remember these things. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.